Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. Episode 68, Connectography, a growing force for driving opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, enabling successful leaders and companies to accelerate to their next level of success on the web at businessadvance.com. And now, here's Pam and Scott. Thanks, Chris. I'm Pam Harper, founding partner and CEO of Business Advancement Incorporated. And right across from me is my business partner and husband, Scott Harper. Hi, Scott. Hi, Pam. It's always a pleasure to join you for yet another episode of Growth Igniters Radio. And as you know, our purpose is to spark new insights, inspiration, and immediately useful ideas for visionary leaders like you and your company to accelerate to your next level of success. So, Pam, what's our focus for today? redefining what's possible to change the game for us, our companies, and industries. In this case, through the growing force of what our guest today calls connectography. Hmm. This is something that's been getting a lot of attention in the media, and it has tremendous strategic and practical implications for businesses of every size in every industry. It impacts everything from defining our markets and customers and the products and services we offer to the jobs we create and the employees we hire. The more we understand about the opportunity, the better decisions we can make on the journey from big idea to big results. So connectivity is is a really big thing, and it's getting bigger. Absolutely. And that's why we're pleased to be speaking today with Parag Khanna, a leading global strategist, world traveler, and best-selling author of numerous books. His latest best-selling book, published in 2016, is Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. Now, among Parag's many accomplishments, which I've condensed a bit here, (laughs) is he is a CNN Global Contributor and Senior Research Fellow in the Center on Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. He's also the managing partner of Hybrid Reality, a boutique geostrategic advisory firm and co-founder and CEO of Factotum, a leading content branding agency. In 2008, Parag was named one of Esquire's 75 most influential people of the 21st century and featured in Wired Magazine's Smart List. He's been a fellow at the New America Foundation and Brookings Institution, advised the U.S. National Intelligence Council, and worked in Iraq and Afghanistan as a senior geopolitical advisor to U.S. Special Operations Forces. Parag holds undergraduate and graduate degrees from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and a PhD from the London School of Economics. He serves on numerous governmental and corporate advisory boards and is a counselor of the American Geographical Society, a trustee of the New Cities Foundation, and a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. His articles have appeared in major international publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, and so many more. And he appears frequently in a variety of media around the world, such as BBC, CNBC, NPR, and other international broadcasters. He's also an active blogger and was host of Interview on MTV from 2008 to 2009. And perhaps many of you caught his TED Talk 
which was February of this year, also TED Global in 2009, and he was a guest host of TED Global in 2012. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks, <laughs> Parag. <laughs> welcome to Growth Igniters Radio. Wow. Thank you so much, Pam and Scott. Great to be with you. Yes, we're so glad you can join us. Uh, this book of yours is fascinating. The concept is fascinating. Tell us a bit about the story. What, what inspired you to write it? Well, this is actually the completion of a trilogy of books about the future of world order, of globalization. Really, this fits into the globalization genre. And I'm particularly motivated to have published it right now because you have a lot of anti-globalization kind of movements, whether it's in our politics where uh, politicians want to put up borders, or whether it's the negative perceptions about the fate of the world economy where people are saying that things are slowing down, capital is retrenching, all of these kinds of things. Whereas, in fact, and this is something I've tried to demonstrate over the course of all three of these books, is that globalization is an ever-expanding process, so much so that this connectivity that, that embodies it is really wrapping the whole world. And so I had to coin a new word, connectography, to actually mm. capture the extent to which connectivity has triumphed over uh, many of the forces of, uh, of nationalism and of boundaries. So, connectography, new word, what's the meaning of that and the implication? Well, yeah, it's a great question. So connectivity, we tend to think of as just digital connectivity, like yeah. you know the internet and, and mobile phones. But in fact, connectivity is a uh, is uh, all these categories of infrastructures like transportation, roads and railways, energy, highway, uh, pipelines, and electricity grids, and then also communications. Uh, like internet cables and so forth. So communications infrastructure is really just the third layer in this centuries-long process of building greater and greater infrastructural connectivity all over the world and linking all of the major economic centers of the world together into this grid, if you will, a matrix, really, I would call it, of these dynamic, thriving cities that are driving the entire world economy. And when you look at the world from that point of view, not from the standpoint of how are commodities markets doing today, you know, what are interest rates in the U.S., what's the growth rate right now, but instead look at this big picture, you mm -hmm. would find enormous reasons to be optimistic. So you have a huge web of not only communication and, and digital communication, which is new, you have uh, people moving, you have information moving, goods moving all over the place, back and forth. It's, it's mind-boggling. How can business leaders wrap their heads around this and really get a handle on what the opportunities as well as the challenges are? Right. Well, the number one thing is to appreciate that just because markets may be slow in one place or the U.S. recovery may be slow, which of course it is, that doesn't mean that the rest of the world is necessarily operating in lockstep. We mm -hmm. are accustomed to thinking of ourselves in the U.S. as the uh, consumer of last resort, uh, you know, mm -hmm. as the driver of global monetary policy and so forth. Some of that is still true, but when it comes to consumption and the growth of the global middle class, that's happening all over the world, and particularly in Asia. So if you are not exposed to those growth markets or the trade across those markets, the trade between China and Africa has grown mm -hmm. by 1,800% in the last uh, 15 years. So you may, you may be lulled into thinking that these are just going to be tough and slow times. The 
the problem is that means that you're just not sufficiently connected and uh, to where the flows are happening, where the business is happening, where the transactions are happening. So companies have to truly be more global today if they want to capture the markets. And indeed, you know, most of the Fortune 500 now earns more revenue from abroad than from within the United States. So clearly, companies are realizing that there's no substitute for being a global company. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, every company really is a global company. I mean, when you stop and think about it, even the smallest firms are connected through the Internet. They source their uh, materials through the Internet. There's no way we not to be a global, projects. I mean, global we, company. We outsource projects ourselves uh, outside the U.S., sure. and we have colleagues outside the U.S. In fact, one of our most interesting projects was in China, and we actually physically never left the United States, but we did the work in China. So, yeah, it's, it is it's a, true. It's a huge web. It's true. So, of course, as you mentioned before, in an election year in the U.S., uh, there are a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum who are somewhat against global trade, to put it mildly. But you're still optimistic about connectivity, correct? Without a doubt. Again, there's the short-term blips and the long-term trends. Right. And by the way, there's a lot of statistical sleight of hand. You'll hear economists say that there's a deceleration of trade growth, right? That's a fancy way of saying things are, in fact, still growing. They're just not growing at the astronomical rates that they were before, right? The same can be said about the Chinese economy. You can phrase it in such a way that there's going to be a, a hard landing and a crash. That's not at all what's happening, of course, because in reality, a chi when, as China reaches a GDP, that's almost as large as the United States. Of course, it cannot grow at that tremendous pace. However, when you're adding 5% to an $18 trillion economy every year, you're still adding several hundred billion dollars a year to the world yeah. economy. You may not be adding $600 billion, but you're still adding $400 billion a year to the world economy. So it is really unfortunate that people don't see the sort of, you know, the, the big picture um, and the enormous potential still in further integrating the world economy. Well, we're, we're here to uh, bring out some of these issues for sure. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll speak more with Parikh Khanna, author of Connectography, about misconceptions and opportunities that our growing connectivity presents. Stay with us. You are listening to Growth Igniter's Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, on the web at businessadvance.com. We enable visionary leaders and their companies to accelerate to their next level of growth and success. And just a reminder, check out our show notes at growthignitersradio.com, episode 68. You can download resources for today's conversation, download Parag Khanna's bio, and you can share on social media so more people can find us. You can also sign up for our weekly alert of upcoming episodes so you'll always be up to date. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper, that's me, and Scott Harper. Scott and I are talking today with Parikh Khanna, author of the book Connectography, about the challenges and constraints posed by the explosion of global connectivity. Parag, how can people find you? Well, 
like most people, I'm a digital citizen as well as a physical citizen, so uh, online is always the best place. Paragkhanna.com, P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A. I'm uh, traveling every single day, basically, uh, whether in the United States or around the world. And uh, so I'm one of the chief beneficiaries of this growing connectivity in which we can um, almost, almost get between any two major cities in the world on a nonstop flight. I operate globally all the time. And you can also go to growthignitersradio.com, episode 68, scroll down under resources, and you'll find links. So let's go back to the conversation. We were talking about some of the misconceptions that people have about connectivity. Let's talk about what is the biggest misconception that people have that you would like to set straight. Well, the biggest misconception is that it's a zero-sum game, right? That, um, that you know, one person's gain or one economy's gain is another's loss. That's not the way connectivity works. We have 250 years of data and multiple Nobel Prizes in economics awarded to research that shows very clearly that the reason that the world economy has grown at all beyond the 1% or 0% growth of the previous 2,000 years was because we began to trade with each other, because we began to build infrastructural connectivity, because we began to optimize land, labor, capital, and production. And so today, when people think of globalization as zero-sum, when they think of it only in terms of, we lost 5,000 jobs from this plant to China, we lost 10,000 jobs from this plant to Mexico, they're not understanding, and as painful as that is, and I acknowledge that, however, um, you know, not all of us are farmers the way we were hundreds of years ago either, right? So we're evolving, and globalization is part of that evolution, and it creates a lot more opportunities than it creates harm. So I think that's the biggest misconception, is to blame globalization for, um, you know, sort of small sorts of consequences rather than appreciating the utilitarian and overall benefits to society as a whole. Mm-hmm. I agreed completely. The thing is, though, that if I'm suffering because something has happened to my company, they've outsourced or they've gone out of business, I'm suffering, uh, or my company is, is not doing as well as it used to, what are some of the major opportunities that people can leverage in connectivity that can remedy some of that real, those real issues and that are not necessarily being fully recognized and realized today? Sure, I'll give you some real examples. First of all, it's about people. This is a story about people. The economy is about people. Our society is about people. People move. People move in search of opportunity all the time. We now have 300 million people living outside of their country of origin, in fact. In fact, 9 million Americans live outside of America, the greatest number than ever, of, than ever before. So people have to be willing to move to where the jobs are, move to the thriving cities. The American history is the story of a population that is resorting itself in search of opportunity. The westward migrations, the gold rush, uh, escaping the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, the growing, swelling populations of Texas and the Southwest are all people moving in search of opportunity. So being mobile is very important. Being near big cities. Big cities are thriving places that are much more resilient to financial crisis uh, or to to, uh, export collapses, as we've experienced recently. So being near cities, being mobile are extremely important. For businesses, using the Internet and e-commerce to serve customers around the world, the percentage of international sales on e-commerce for Americans, American businesses that use e-commerce, has grown into double digits. So for many, for many businesses uh, on eBay today, 25 or 30% of their sales will be international. So without those really good 
logistics and other kinds of networks that connect us to the rest of the world, those businesses would not be well off uh, the way they are today. We tend not to realize all of the things that go into the business, and these are the hidden opportunities in a sense, aren't they? Oh, without a doubt. And again, the more investments that we as a society or as a government are making in connectivity, the better. So right now in our political discussions, we're... um, barely skimming the surface of the deep issues. For example, the National Infrastructure Bank is an idea that Congress has been playing with for 10 years. Of course, Mm -hmm. it should have implemented it 20 years ago. We haven't actually done it yet. So it's yet just one other example of the kinds of systems that we need to kind of overhaul internally so that we can be more efficient, more productive, and more competitive. We're seeing a lot of different things that are rising up. Almost it seems like in isolation, like Bitcoin, for example. Well, that comes up and there's something else over here. What I hear you saying is that there is a lot more to connecting all of this when people can actually see it and understand it and see how it all works together. More people then that's going to be where the real opportunity is. Yeah, and I certainly wish not only that more people saw it, but of course that our politicians would explain things better because mm-hmm. you know they mostly just focus on those populations in states that have a lot of delegates, uh, you know, like Ohio and so forth, where there has been job loss due to outsourcing. But they don't explain how the other factories that are thriving and the businesses that are surging in technology and services are benefiting from the fact that by exporting a job or by investing in foreign countries, you help those people earn more money, have higher salaries, join the middle class, and therefore consume more American goods. So there is a absolutely demonstrable and enormous net benefit to America's investments overseas. And what I just said only took 15 seconds. I just don't know why our politicians can't say the same thing. That's an interesting point. It sounds like there have to be so many more conversations that take place that haven't been happening between business leaders, between business leaders and politicians. Obviously, there are many, but the right ones have to come up so that, that people too. are seeing that opportunity. They're not yeah, and threatened. Remember, remember that 10 years ago, 15 years ago even, when all advanced Western societies were witnessing jobs being outsourced and rising competition from Asia, some of them, like Germany or Switzerland or South Korea, they did something about it. They said, you know what, let's get our companies to team up with universities and with vocational schools mm-hmm. uh, to train workers in new areas of the economy that are higher skilled, that can't be outsourced just yet. Let's figure out how to support those industries through federal programs, and let's really boost our export competitiveness. So other countries did do that. We in this country are pretending like it, like everyone is in the same boat. But that's not true. We have been dropping the ball on this issue for almost 15 years. So it's a real opportunity. Exactly. Well, we're going to talk more about what we can do to uh, leverage that opportunity, but we're going to take another quick break right now. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Parakana, author of Connectography. Stay with us. You're listening to Growth Igniter's Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper, brought to you by Business Advancement Incorporated, on the web at businessadvance.com. We want to thank those of you who have reviewed and rated our podcast series on iTunes so that more people can find us. However, others have told us that they're not quite sure how to do it. It's not an 
incredibly intuitive. That's why I've created a short video which removes the mystery from the process in just three easy steps. Step one, go to growthignitersradio.com. Step two, look over at the sidebar to the right of the page and you'll see a headline, subscribe to Growth Igniters Radio. Third, click on the blue button underneath that says how to review Growth Igniters Radio on iTunes. That takes you to an 84 second video showing everything you need to know about how to review and rate our podcast. And thanks again for listening and helping us spread the good word about Growth Igniters Radio. Welcome back to Growth Igniters Radio with Pam Harper and Scott Harper. Over the last two segments, Scott and I have been talking with Parakana, author of the book Connectography, about the growing force of connectivity and the opportunities that it presents. Parag, can you tell us again how people can find your book? Absolutely. I'm on Amazon right now with uh, Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. Uh, there's lots of order options on my website, paragkana.com. Okay. So this is the part of Growth Igniters Radio where we talk about immediately useful ideas because our listeners are traveling all over the world. Mm -hmm. They're connected. And uh, we want to help them to take advantage of the opportunities that you're talking about. Let's start out by, for example, strategically. What could somebody do with the issue of developing a new market? So something immediate and Immediate, and right. right now. What would you suggest? Right, that's a great question, a great place to start, because a lot of people find it daunting to understand or to access or to operate in a place like China or India. What they need to understand, and this is something that I flesh out at great length in my work, is to think about cities. You need to look at, and this is data that you can find on your computer or in my book without having to travel or invest you know, in that sort of uh, market development just yet, but mm -hmm. understand what your business is and how it relates to these huge growth markets around the world. And then look at the cities. What are the best performing cities in those countries? And then that's where you need to be. And start with what I map out in the book is the 50 major megacities, demographic hubs, economic drivers around the world, not just in North America, but in, in, on all continents. And those are going to be the major economic hubs for literally the next 25 to 30 years. So if you want to really plan ahead for your global expansion, you need to be looking at that map and saying, what are the cities that I can uh, you know, comfortably get to and start to explore opportunities in joint ventures, collaboration, sales, exports, marketing, and so forth. That's really the best way to start, is to pick the right city. Mm -hmm. Now, the key to expanding any business anywhere is really tapping into unmet customer needs. So, you know, we're... I'm a company in Minnesota. I identify a city uh, somewhere else, different country. How do I understand what needs are not being met there that I can actually fulfill? Well, generally speaking, what's happening in emerging markets is that they're urbanizing very quickly, but their infrastructure is very poor. There's an enormous need not only for you know, architecture, for design, for building, for construction, but there's also a huge need for digital services, right? So, so mobile uh, services, telephony, apps you know, all of the technology stuff and digital connectivity, and then a huge need for services. So poor quality education, poor quality health care, all of these nuts and bolts and basics and consumer goods. The reason consumer goods companies are thriving 
even in downturns, is, uh, you know, take Procter & Gamble and Unilever. It's because these are things that people absolutely must spend on, you know, the staple items. Mm-hmm. And you find that as people urbanize, they finally get the chance to invest in these basics and lead, lead a decent quality of life. So companies that provide those basics uh, around the world are doing extremely well right now. Hmm. That sounds like a lot of opportunity. Now, going along with that, obviously, we have supply chains that uh, we're looking at expanding. We are part of a supply chain and also managing that supply chain. Where are the opportunities there? Yes. Well, I view the world as being fundamentally reorganized away from nations and borders towards infrastructure and supply chains. To me, supply and demand is the most powerful principle in the history of the world. And I actually use that principle throughout the book to explain just about everything that's happening Mm -hmm. in the world today is supply and demand. So the demand is growing so quickly uh, in these emerging markets where the populations are so large and people are urbanizing and there's a great need for labor uh, productivity. So being participating in the supply chain, servicing the supply chain, just getting into uh, operating and owning uh, uh, links of the supply chain in emerging markets is hugely profitable. So logistics companies are another example. I mentioned uh, you know, previous, uh, previously sectors like telecommunications and infrastructure. Logistics is massively growing in these, co- in these countries for exactly the same reasons. What's also interesting in your book is that you talk at length about how we really need to have a better understanding of our supply chain. And as our companies and the companies we depend upon are outsourcing themselves, and uh, you just don't know where some of the materials that go into what you're eating come from uh, or what you're making. So can you talk a little bit about that, something that you can immediately do to get a better understanding? How can we not only understand our suppliers, but their suppliers as well? Absolutely, and that's a great set of questions. This was a very intriguing area to investigate in my research to look at how the more you trace the supply chain, the more you realize that everything is made everywhere. And, um, you know, just about anything, goods and services, has a uh, conceptual phase, a design phase, a prototyping phase, a production Mm -hmm. phase, a distribution phase, a sales phase, and an after-sales services phase, and so on and so on. And that applies to goods and services. And you find that there, that, that there is a global dimension to every one of these things. So tracing a supply chain becomes increasingly uh, complicated. It even becomes a moral issue because we've found that there are uh, minerals from North Korea in the supply chain of Hewlett-Packard laptops. You know, that's not supposed to happen from a legal standpoint, but it does. We found with the collapse of a um, garment factory in Bangladesh several years ago, that major Western retail brands like Zara and H&M and others, you know, were having some of their clothing made there. And mm-hmm. I think there is, again, a huge opportunity here because we have tried for decades to reform and to improve and to modernize countries through the World Bank and the United Nations and multilateral kinds of structures. But those don't penetrate countries the way supply chains do. Uh-huh. So improving the governance of the supply chain, improving the standards of the supply chain, the labor codes, the environmental protection, protections and so forth. That is how you actually wind up affecting real lives for for billions of people, actually. So this is an important piece to really understand and to commit to understanding to start out with. Now, a third area is having to do with the digital workforce. And I know you talk about that quite a bit in your book. 
the global digital workforce is to me something absolutely fascinating. It's the um, it's the notion that even when you don't physically move, you have this access to a real global digital market. So I look at companies like uh, TaskRabbit and uh, and so forth, uh, Odesk, for example, that are mm-hmm. these online Upwork. marketplaces, yeah. Upwork, exactly, um, that are these huge, you know, they are really becoming among the largest employers in the whole world. They don't employ people per se, but they facilitate employment. And I've hired many people on a project basis off of these platforms all mm-hmm. over the world. And, um, and you know, it's a very sort of, um, it's a system that has a lot of transparency because people are ranked according to their past performance on projects and so forth, like, you know, sort of books on Amazon, if you will. And, right. um, and you know, there's an eagerness, there's a smoothness to working with people through these platforms that facilitate all of the, all of the sort of, you know, contracting and payments and so forth. So we're creating these efficient digital marketplaces for people all over the world who have never met and never even spoken to work with each other. And this is what some people call peer-to-peer capitalism. And that thriving peer-to-peer capitalism is an enormous step forward in terms of uh, empowering people with, with various skill sets uh, wherever they may be in the world. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg here. Yeah. But uh, the time's gone by. Any final thoughts on the topic of the opportunities that are out there with regard to connectography? Well, you know, we have to be very cautious not to throw the baby out with the bathwater right now, the way our politics is going. We have to remember that America is the architect of the world trading system, the world financial system. It is still the most connected superpower. It has so much to offer the world in terms of technology, finance, security, energy. America is a leader in all of these areas. America as a whole is much better off if it's more connected. And um, mm-hmm. and we need to continue to invest in that, not just as a government, but as as businesses and as citizens. So I believe that there is a, you know, a strategy that a government and governments and companies and people can pursue as they kind of follow a checklist and thinking about uh, what their skills are, how connected they are geographically, technologically, and so forth. Two fast-growing uh, markets, that's where they're going to never, never lose sight of opportunities that are out there. Excellent points. Parag, thank you so much for being our guest today on Growth Igniters Radio. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Parag. To get show notes and resource links for this week's episode, go to growthignitersradio.com, episode 68. Until next time, this is Pam Harper and Scott Harper wishing you continued success and leaving you with this question to discuss with your team. What opportunities in the expanding web of global connectivity can we find and start acting on today? Growth Igniters and Growth Igniters Radio are service marks of Business Advancement Incorporated. All Growth Igniters Radio episodes are copyrighted productions of Business Advancement Incorporated, intended for the private use of our audience. Except as otherwise provided by copyright law, all other uses, including copying, editing, redistribution, and publication without prior written consent of Business Advancement Incorporated, are prohibited. All rights reserved.